the Slaughter in May podcast. Hello everyone, my name's Gillian Fairfield and I'm joined today by my colleagues Richard Smith and James Cook to discuss what we've been seeing in the equity capital markets space. Now clearly COVID and lockdown have meant that for many businesses the usual cash flow that they rely on has been slashed. This has driven a lot of activity on the equity capital raising front. Uh, Richard, can you tell us a bit more about what we've been seeing? Yeah, so we've seen a number of companies, including many of our clients, carrying out equity raises and even more considering them at the moment. Um, The primary drivers are, of course, generally to solve short-term liquidity problems caused by the pandemic or to strengthen balance sheets and reduce net debt to help companies weather the crisis. And most often, in reality, it's a mixture of both. Um, so, so far, we've seen a number of quite large placings from issuers raising between 10% and 20% of their issued share capital, and we've acted on many of those, as I say. Those have tended to be companies that are large enough that they can raise a meaningful amount by issuing between 10 and 20% of their share capital, but not so large that their book build in order to generate the investor demand cannot be done quickly, and that's a key feature of a placing, of course. Um, alongside that, uh, we've seen a number of less sizable raises by smaller companies in the market, and we expect that there may well be some larger raises as the lockdown continues using a variety of different structures. Um, those you know, often more documented processes inherently have a longer lead time given the need for a, an FCA approved prospectus um, if you want to issue 20% or more of your issued share capital and, and potentially also the need for shareholder approvals in general meetings depending on the structure. Yes, and I I think that ties into what we saw after the last um, crisis, the financial crisis of 2008, that there was a bit of a longer lead-in time before some of the more sizable rescue rights issues. But Richard, on on a practical note, what sort of market reception are these getting? I mean, how are investors reacting when companies go out to market? Well, uh, on the ones we've done, there there appears to be sufficient demand out there for for the right opportunities. Now, of course, we don't know what situations there have been in the market where you know, companies may have wall-crossed investors only to discover that they, they, in fact, did not think it was the right time. But of the ones we've been involved with, um, you know, there, there, there has been investor demand. There was a lot of talk initially about first-mover advantage and getting out there quickly in order to you know, um, take the demand before it uh, dissipates. But it's probably fair to say that we're actually seeing some investors biding their time and being selective about where to deploy their capital, particularly those investors that have a range of of investments across a particular sector. And that might suit some issuers. Um, And of course, there are companies considering whether it's better to wait in the hope of more market certainty and share price recovery. A lot of the successful placings have been largely filled by supportive shareholders although there are certainly plenty of hedge fund and new investors waiting in the wings and expressing significant interest. That can, of course, create a bit of tension in the allocation process. And it's fair to say that company management are now consistently taking a very active role in allocations and existing shareholders are themselves giving clear guidance on on their expectations. Management are also subscribing in, in placings themselves as a tangible way of showing confidence to investors. And you know, companies often think that's a very important feature of being able to demonstrate that confidence to the market. Uh, investors have, as you would expect, been focused on the extreme downside and worst case modeling. They don't want companies to sugarcoat things and it's very hard to sugarcoat things in this environment in any case. 
uh, they want to be sure that their money will resolve any liquidity problems and they're not throwing good money after bad, and also that there's not going to be another raising just around the corner. Obviously, some of the key variables for modelling purposes are how long the pandemic will last for, which, of course, nobody can predict, and how long it will take for the company's revenues to return, which will, of course, vary from company to company. So perhaps, unsurprisingly, we've not seen any standard assumptions emerging in the modelling work we've seen. But so, so Richard, you've mentioned that investors obviously want to know what the company considers the extreme downside position to be. I mean, are investors um, setting out what they want to see from companies as regards how they are helping themselves? I mean, presumably it would be the case that an equity raise will be one of an entire range of measures that the company's adopting. Is that right? Y yes. And of course, um, investors want to know what the holistic financial position is for, for the issuer. And when justifying the need to do an equity raise, companies will need to say, A, how they're being affected by the current situation and be everything that they are doing to to sort that out and so that will include a range of those self-help measures um, both to preserve preserve cash um, alongside the equity raising and generally to shore up their financial position so that might be sorting out their debt arrangements whether that's taking on new debt or extending or amending their existing debt facilities obtaining lender covenant waivers if they are facing potential uh, covenant breaches over the coming period, reducing their cost bases, whether that's through redundancy or, or other measures. Furloughing is a, you know, a, a regularly reported on step that many, many issues have been taking um, uh, under the job retention scheme that the government put in place. Cutting discretionary spend as a general matter and even negotiating with pension trustees over their, their deficit repayment plan. So there's a whole range of those types of measures that companies are taking and as part of explaining their their position to investors will need to describe and and how about dividends i know that's always a tense one isn't it but what are we seeing on the dividends front well uh, many many issuers indeed a large proportion of the of the FTSE um, 350 have already cancelled or suspended or deferred um, depending on how you want to put it their their dividends um, uh, that they were otherwise due to announce mm -hmm. and so there's been a large hit to the investor community in terms of income receipts from the FTSE um, over the last few weeks. And I'm, I'm sure we will see that continue until the market stabilises. And so for issuers that are contemplating placings, uh, James, what do you think are the key things that they would need to know? Yeah, so the placements we've seen to date have almost exclusively been implemented through accelerated book build processes. Um, typically, they've been launched after market close one night and then they're filled overnight and the announcement of the results is put out the next morning. Although we have seen a few going intraday on the book build, although that's slightly more difficult because obviously the market price is moving as you're doing the book build. Um, but whichever method people use, they've almost always been preceded by at least a day or two of discussions with major shareholders on a war cross basis both to test the demand and appetite um, and also to effectively pre-fill the book before you go out and do your book build to a large extent. Now, many of the raisers are using what we call a cash box structure. Um, and what that does is effectively able, enable a company to issue shares on a non-preemptive basis in excess of the 5 or 10% that companies usually have standing AGM authorizations for from their shareholders. And it's quite interesting these cash box structures are being used actually because they've typically been avoided in recent years as investor bodies have made pretty clear that they should not be used to circumvent these limits that are put in place by shareholders at the AGM. 
but in the current climate there's been there's been a change of sea in that at least on a temporary basis and the preemption group which issued the key guidance in this area has relaxed their position on this and actually recommended that on a case-by-case -case and temporary basis investors should consider supporting these non-preemptive cash box placings of up to 20 percent of issued share capital and actually the FCA, the Investment Association, the AFME and, and various others have all indicated their support for this approach and we've seen plenty of issuers doing it. It's probably just worth noting on that, that I think, Gillian, actually that there's a few conditions that the preemption group have um, recommended issuers should satisfy when doing this. A few of them are sort of common sense and, and would probably be done anyway. So they state that issuers, for instance, should consult with major shareholders, which, which of course you'd want to do anyway. Um, explain the specific company's circumstances fully in their announcements and also involve management in the allocation process which actually Richard mentioned earlier is, is something that on a practical level people are keen to do anyway. Um, the fourth one though is a bit trickier. They, they suggest that you should proceed on a soft preemptive basis to the extent possible in your placing. Right okay I mean that does sound more difficult. I, I agree that the other ones that you mentioned those are pretty much what you would expect most issuers to be focused on anyway. But Richard, this soft preemption requirement, um, what exactly does that boil down to? You know, particularly if you're talking about an issuer that has quite a lot of retail shareholders. Uh, yes, uh, I think it's it's particularly difficult for retail retail shareholders, but we we can come on to that. Um, and of course, the preemption group has not actually set out any particular definition for what soft preemption means. Um, while it's not too difficult to broadly allocate shares pro rata amongst existing shareholders um, who participate in the placing, um, those are, of course, typically institutional shareholders. So I think what soft preemption really means in that context is that you should try to involve as many of the institutions that are currently in your register in a placing as possible and obviously try to allocate uh, in a broadly pro rata way. I think that's what the preemption group is is trying to get at. And really, I think they were saying there that we don't want you to favour just the very large, if you like, price setting institutions in your register. You also need to um, give due attention to some of the smaller institutions. So I think the preemption group is focusing very much on on the institutional side in, in reality. Um, but that, you know, the outcome of a lot of these placing processes is that retail shareholders are not uh, are not able to be involved. And, and that has created a reasonable degree of controversy in some in some parts. There was an there was an article in the Times, for example, a couple of weekends ago, that a number of the great and the good in the investment management sector had had penned an open letter calling for companies to make more efforts to accommodate retail shareholders in in, the, in, in those offerings, which is not something that has ever really been done done before. But it but it is possible to do it, um, and we've been working with one client um, called Primary Bid. Uh, and, and they have a tech platform that enables retail investors to access accelerated book build placings real time so that retail investors can benefit from the placing price. And then, of course, as often happens, an increase in the share price following a placing once a company's financial position is improved. Um, and their platform takes no longer to operate than involving an institution in a normal book build process. And it's very easy to, to plug into a structure. So we may see more companies looking at those sorts of options to involve retail shareholders over time. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a preemption light, I guess we would say. Uh, exactly right. I guess we've focused on placings so far largely because that's been the key tool we've seen deployed to date. Um, 
Richard mentioned earlier that obviously potentially there may be larger equity raises in the pipeline, which have inherently a longer timeline just because they need prospectuses and potentially shareholder approval. Um, Gillian, have you, have you seen much in the pipeline in this area yet? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, as we saw in the last financial crisis, um, these larger issuers do take, um, they do have a longer lead in time. And James, as you've mentioned, I think most of the equity raises we've seen to date have been the sub 20% ones, so as to make the most of the preemption group's stance um, on, on the guidelines we discussed earlier. So when it comes to larger equity raises, I think the key hurdle there is going to be what a company needs to say in its prospectus. Uh, the trickiest issue is probably going to be the working capital statement that companies need to give. Um, so of course, this is where we look to the FCA for some guidance. Um, just to restate the basic position, of course, a, a company going out with a prospectus um, to give a clean working capital statement, an issuer would need to say that it's got sufficient working cap to meet its requirements for 12 months. Although in practice, companies do tend to look ahead for an 18-month period. Um, now, the FCA has always said in the past that in order to give a clean working cap statement, uh, a company cannot then list a whole long list of assumptions and caveats. Um, now, the real difficulty under this current crisis is how can a company be absolutely sure of how the COVID uh, crisis is going to play out? And so the FCA, in their recent statement of policy, they, they did relax the position on this. And they've said that issuers can include what they are using as the key COVID-19 related assumptions to underpin the, a reasonable worst case scenario. So, for example, you know, a company w might want to say that they've they've based their working cap work on the fact that, say, 75% of the company's premises will reopen at a particular point in time, and that they're predicting, you know, a certain percentage of their normal revenue for the second half of 2020 compared to their 2019 level. And and we have seen some companies use this slightly more nuanced stance. For example, like the recent Aston Mark Martin prospectus. Um, they came out with a prospectus which essentially said that they couldn't give a clean working cap statement, but they gave some specific disclosures around why this was and why management nevertheless felt confident that they would have sufficient working cap following the equity raise. And I think it's fair to say that um, various people had been agitating for a greater um, breadth of relaxations from the FCA, but of course the FCA is wanting to do a balancing act between facilitating fundraising in what are pretty extraordinary circumstances at the moment, but at the same time protecting investors. I mean, the other thing that the FCA flagged for issuers, which they might want to have regard to if they are doing a prospectus-based issue, is the simplified prospectus regime, um, which would significantly cut back on the work that's required to actually prepare a prospectus. Um, the, the one problem that I would flag on that front is that where offerings have a US shareholder element that's significant, it can create some issues there as US securities law typically drives a, a higher level of disclosure. So what we may end up getting to is simplified prospectus but then topped up with additional disclosures uh, where that's needed by the company's own specific circumstances. So just to turn the question round back to both of you, I, I would ask, looking into your crystal ball, what do you see coming up next? <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, I think we're going to inevitably see more companies going out, um, but also that we'll see more innovative structures for raises. 
um, seen maybe convertible bond placings. I know we've we've seen a couple of those already. Um, open offers like the Cafe One launch recently. Maybe some conditional placings with clawback and and probably various hybrids of of those and more traditional structures as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, just in terms of timing, I'm pretty sure we're going to see a a trickle of further placings um, and some rights issues or open offers. Uh, as we head into the summer, so over the next few weeks, uh, I suspect once furloughing ends, people are back to work, government schemes stop paying out money to issuers, we will then see another wave come the autumn using people's uh, interim financials. Uh, so in the September, October window where, you know, that might be where, where we will see some of the larger um, rights issues come into the market. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how investors react to that. Uh, I think they will make it clear that issuers don't have carte blanche uh, and that raises have to be carefully structured and justified. And I think investors will want to know what the holistic financial position is of the issuer company before they're prepared to uh, to uh, hand over money in the context of the current environment. So that's going to be create some interesting tensions between some companies and issuers over the next few weeks. Um, not least of all, because some of these issuances will have to be done at pretty high speed. Yes, great. OK, thanks both. So it sounds like it's a question of watch this space. So thank you, Richard, and thank you, James. And if anybody has any questions, do get in touch with your usual Slaughter and May contacts. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.